International Trombone Association Journal. That's right. And I brought a copy for you to see, JJ. And uh, it's it's a shame. I was out of copies. Our copy two before, before this was a copy featuring Frank Rehack. Exactly. Who and what is the International Trombone Association? And and I'm, I'm particularly interested in the international. Mm-hmm. Here's our journal. There. This it's is a group journal. of about 3,000 trombone players Good Lord. all over the world. And um, we... I That's frightening already. <laughs> you, you just got started and you you bowled me over. Well, we started... 3,000 trombone players. I started the group in 1972 for a couple of reasons. One, um, I just felt there were so many things. The trombone really went through a golden age in the 50s and 60s, I think, um, becoming a frontline instrument with saxophone and... and, and trumpet and so forth, but also in the classical world, there are major pieces being written for the trombone in the 60s and 70s. There's, have you ever heard the Sequenza by Luciano Berrio? I know about it. It's I an important it. work. I've heard about it. And it's it's helped the trombone rise from just an instrument that people, you know, yeah. sat back in the orchestra and so forth, to the point where um, it was having pieces written by major composers. Anakis, you know, that name. I've, he has written a concerto for trombone. I think I've heard about that. And, and so there... There was the bass trombone scene. I'm a bass trombonist. That seemed to all of a sudden become an instrument unto itself mm -hmm. during the 60s. Mm -hmm. And uh, partly George's work out in the West Coast, George Roberts. Mm -hmm. Sweet guy. Sweetheart. Oh. Sweetheart. Love him to death. We sat you, side by side doing the Carol Burnett show for about three years. Well, man, he's one of the great gentlemen. And, uh, oh, God. He's but just the, so the innovations in the double valve mm -hmm. and people, you know, lead pipes and everything else, I felt that. Things are going so fast, we needed some source for all trombone players, studio, jazz, amateur, fans, uh, European um, research, talking about the sackbutt, researching early performance practice. How did they trill in the 17th century? Stuff like that needed to be done, and most the, the jazz journals didn't deal much with the trombone, and the classical journals didn't deal much with the trombone, mm -hmm. and the research journals didn't even touch the trombone. It wasn't worthy of it. So we need to come together. Uh -huh. And, you know, there's something special when a bunch of trombone players get together. There is mutual respect. Mm -hmm. I can't tell you what it's like to see Louis Van Haney, Bill Watchers, Jimmy Cleveland, Buddy Baker, um, a young kid who's principal in the New York Philharmonic, just got the job, Albert Mangelsdorf, Stu Dempster, who plays avant-garde stuff, all sing together and truly respecting and loving each other and curious with, how do you do that? That's marvelous. You go to an oboe concert, an oboe convention, and they all like this, hiding their reeds. <laughs> <laughs> trombone players give, man. That's true. It's great and the story. other thing is, you put a bunch of trombone players together and play a choir, and it sounds like a family. It sounds like a chorus. Oh, it it's beautiful. Marvelous. You put a bunch of oboes or trumpets together, and it's limited, man. You know yeah, I mean? yeah. So, that's how this came about. Now we have an annual international meeting every year, and that's where I first got up the, the, the guts to write you maybe about eight years to see if I was running the workshops we had around the world to see if we could get you one of the workshops. Of course, you're too busy writing. Mm -hmm. And um, mm -hmm. we will continue to try and get you there, and hopefully your schedule will, will commit that. So you're welcome to that journal, and I'll answer any other questions you, you have about it, and I'll see if I can get some past journals. Uh, the, the one before this was just a feature on Frank Rehack. Is that like Pictures oh. of him with Miles, his interviews. Oh, that's nice. And, um, that's nice. It, Frank, was, Frank was very pleased with it. Have you done one on Nepper? 
we had an interview with Jimmy once, but we have to do an article. He's an interesting trombone player sure that, that, that has unique. interested me through the years because he he is not he is not the exhibitionist of a of a of a a watcheress or a Wills, Phil Wilson. He's just quiet. And man, uh, lately I did a concert type thing in uh, L.A. with Nepper, and I haven't, I haven't worked with Nepper very much. Just on a few occasions we've been in the same bone section together. And he was over in the corner warming up, and I was nearby warming up too. Man, all he did was just play one note, and it was such a beautiful one note, because it, it sounds like a French horn almost. But he it's just, his sound. Beautiful. And all he was doing was playing one note, warming up, man. I hear you. It's such a wonderful one note hell because it's got that French horn quality You're in right. it. It's so dark that it's marvelous. And he's it's marvelous. He's, he's old and new. He's a combination, you know, you hear all it's the, the marvelous. What? <laughs> Jimmy's one of the underrated players because oh, he's so Oh, he's one of the underrated dudes of all time, man. He's just so understated oh, and I hear you. often hang dog look, you know, hang dog kind yeah, he's of funny, but till charisma. He plays, it's... So I'm glad that uh, I'm glad that I respond to his, even his warm up over the corner. He's by himself, or just horn pointed towards the floor. Ooh, that's it. What a warm, what a warm sound. <laughs> I look around double a second time to make sure it isn't a French horn because it has that marvelous French horn quality to it. That's right. I wonder where he, you know, yeah, how, how, how did how he come by that? You know, well, the <laughs> thing is, he's, he's studied classically. He loves Bach. He plays Bach uh, uh, cello yeah, suits all the time. Yeah. And I just wonder it's uh, if, if that orchestral background he must that's, have had at one a, time. That's a good bet. That's but a he good did Bird, bet. too. And, I mean, obviously, Bird took him another direction, but he already had this earlier influence that just, there's yeah, the third stream again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Tell me, in this association, is Miles Anderson, is that his name, Miles? Miles is very active. Miles is... He has a high profile in this Sure, situation. because he is doing a lot of new things, and he's a real independent person, uh, and he's promoting the horn as a solo instrument. I like Miles. He's oh, a, he, for one thing, he's a maverick. Oh, yeah, he's, 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 opinionate, he's opinionated, he's a maverick. And but he's uh, true to the music. He's very honest. I like him. I like him, man. And I've got two or three of his recordings where he's doing wild, crazy things right. on the horn. <laughs> They're interesting, man. You it know, is interesting. One in which he overdubs himself doing a lot of... Subotnik? I think it might be Subotnik. Morton Subotnik, yeah. I think so. The Unreasoning Man. No, it's... I think so. Ghosts or something. It's, it's marvelous. You know, yeah. it's, it's, it's interesting. It's good stuff. It's really good stuff. But the... There's so many things. The trombone is involved in so many of the new musics right now. I mean, so many directions. But there's a question. You've probably been asked this this many times. You've set up a, a kind of a model and a standard for modern trombone, and you've credited Fred Beckett and some of the other players, Jimmy Harrison and so forth, influencing you. Except in listening to those players, I don't hear the clarity and perfection of execution I hear in your playing. Plus, there's a linear approach I hear that I would credit to Lester Young and to Charlie Parker. Just how did you formulate your concept at a time when there was no trombone player playing in the style that you eventually um, refined? Is the tape rolling? Yes, sir. The tape is rolling. Well, as I ind indicated yesterday, Tom, and I I'll have to reiterate and be a little redundant, that my first 
the, the first jazz soloist and or stylist that had a severe impact on me that was to last for the rest of my life was Lester Young. This is long before Bird and Diz. And uh, I was still in high school, to tell you the truth, and I got in with a bunch of guys, and we were all... Well, was a, there, was a, there was Vincent Stewart, a, a saxophone player. There was Eldridge Marsh and a trumpet player. These are all local guys in Indianapolis in high school and whatnot. Um, another trumpet player, Merrill Lapp. We were all Lester Young aholics. We sat down together and we memorized all of Lester's solos. We could hum every Lester Young solo there was. So I'm, I'm trying to answer your question as best I can by saying that Lester Young was the first one who left an indelible mark on me that had to do, that relates to the linear way of playing. So it was the trombonist who first triggered my interest in that manner of, of communicating on the instrument. It, was, it happened to be Lester. When you first started uh, being enamored with Lester and playing him, did you find any difficulty in transferring those lines to the, the, the trombone and the awkwardness of the trombone? Man, great difficulty. Let's face it, for great difficulty. How did you overcome that? Were there any particular exercises? Just, just practicing, just practicing scales, and just being um, determined to try to find a way to approach that that way of playing and try to bring it off. It was quite awkward. I listened to my first records, and I'm sometimes embarrassed because. <laughs> I'm getting started in the bebop, but they sound so awkward and labored, and it was labored and awkward, let's face it, in the beginning. And it was just through diligence and practice and determination and just dogged tenacity that I just, I just forced myself to hang in there and try to make it happen. Uh, I was fortunate in, in, in hooking up with guys like, uh, when I finally met Dizzy for the first time, and Dizzy had a chance to hear me play, and there was something in, in, in my playing that gave Dizzy this impression that, well, this guy could probably turn the trick, and he needs encouragement, and man, he was so beautiful, he encouraged me, he, he like embraced me in a manner of speaking like, hey man, you're it, and just keep on doing what you're doing, try this sometime, you can do this, and blah, 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 he play something on his trumpet, and I play it on, I, I tried to play it on the trombone, he said, you, you're getting there, just just stay at it, and Disney was a great source of encourage, encouragement to me as far as the whole bebop syndrome was concerned. Interestingly enough, a guy who isn't Normally associated with bebop was a great source of encouragement to me as far as getting the hang of linear playing and bebop playing, etc. Would you believe it? Illinois Jacket. Mm -hmm. I was playing in Illinois Jacket's band for a while, and this was during the period when Jacket Jacket was riding high with his hit records, Robin's Nest, and uh, what was the thing where flying he was, home? Oh, yeah, that's his baby, flying home, whatnot. And I was in his uh, theaters. Equivalent of sextet or octet or something like that. Four, four horn, a four horn front line and four rhythm. That's what it was, yeah. And uh, funny, Jacket would do all this honking and screaming on the stage, but man, when Jacket went backstage and noodled on his horn, Jacket was playing pure bebop. He would never play it on the stage. But over in the corner warming up, Jacket was playing pure, unadulterated, good bebop. And he said, hey, JJ, let's. Let's jam so and so and so and so. I said, oh, Jack, I, uh, I can't do that. He said, oh, yes, you can. And to make a long story short, Jacket was a great source of encouragement. We'd just get on the corner and just start running lines and things. And he said, come on, come on, come on. And he would just encourage me to come along with him on, on the linear stuff he was doing over the corner, just warming up or just horsing around on his horn. It was amazing. Because you don't think of bebop. You don't think no. of 
Illinois Jacket and Bebop. You think of Illinois Jacket, the showman. Sure. First and foremost, the showman. Well, you had the encouragement, you had the drive, and you had a, a kind of a goal in your ear, what you wanted to do. Still, was there any point in your in your practice, your scale work and so forth, where all of a sudden you made some kind of discovery how you're going to be able to do it? Because the speed at which you were able to play and the execution was something that no one else had accomplished, at least within the jazz field to that day. There must have been some kind of discovery you made or a special type of scale pattern in your practice or way you coordinated the tongue or the articulation of the tongue. For trombonists out there from a technical standpoint, um, was it nothing else than just everyday hours and hours of work? Do you, do you pushed it up there? Was it something you found that speeded up the process? Tom, my best recollection is that it was just listening and listening and having my antenna up and my ear to the ground and practice, 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 practice. Let, let's, let's not forget, uh, man, there was an old timer that uh, played an awful lot of trombone that while not being linear in the classic sense that Lester Young was, or that we're talking about now, nonetheless, it was, it had a tinge of that to it, and I'm talking about Vic Dickinson. He was a marvelous trombonist, and the a marvelous stylist. He, man, yeah. he had it, he had it all going for him, and, and, and I must say that, that he too was one of my early inf mm -hmm. influences, because he got over the horn with such ease and it, it, it bordered on the linear without being uh, linear in, in, in the classic sense of Lester, Long, Lester Young's linearity and, and, and style of playing. It was, it had a tinge of that. It really did. What about you recall? Your, your sound? Lester was, you were influenced by Lester's line. We always think of that as a light floating line. Oh, yeah. On trombone, you get a very big, dark, sonorous sound, and it was a, a I, descriptions are, are difficult, but it was a fuller sound than the traditional sound from mm -hmm. the trombone. Were you using larger equipment? Did uh, um, while playing fast to keep a big sound? It seems like incongruous that those things could work together. Yet somehow you were able to do it. Most of us, when we play fast, the sound seems to thin out a little bit. Um, any anything you could share with us that what you were oh, thinking or how you accomplished that? I think I went through through a cycle that that a lot of guys go through in the <coughs> early stages, and that is uh, experimenting with various horns and various mouthpieces and various configurations of bore size, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, I, ha I don't recall the first horn that I played for, for any length of time. My best recollection is with the King. And uh, Kai Wending and I uh, uh, formed an, al an alliance with this guy, Clem Frack, at the Clem Factory, at the King Factory, a wonderful old dude, one of the honchos at, uh, uh, at King at that time, who was uh, kind enough and generous enough to let us, we, we would come through Cleveland appearing together. He let us come to the factory and almost, like, like, here's the keys to the factory. Just play all the horns you want and experiment all you want. He was a marvelous old old dude. And uh, we did a lot of experimenting with horns. And uh, I ended up, and so did Kai, or Kay, on the 3B. And the 3B, of course, is a .508 bore. And it felt comfortable to me at that time. And I stayed with the King 3B for a very long time. And then, a strange thing happened that I think we went over it lightly in the class, in the clinic yesterday. I, Kay and I were in Boston playing at this uh, club, and Bill, Bill Harris was in town playing at another club. And Kay knew Bill personally, and I didn't. He said, hey, let's go over 
and I'll introduce you to Bill, and we'll talk. He's a fun guy. He in fact, he's a practical joker. He, be careful when you go there, because he'll pull something on you. But anyway, to make a long story <laughs> short, um, we went to see Bill Harris, and he sounded beautiful. He, he just had this marvelous, unique thing that was uniquely Bill Harris. And I had a chance to meet Bill and talk to him. I said, by the way, Bill, what, what is this configuration of horn that you have? He said, well, J.J., it's, uh, it's simply a larger bore bell with a smaller bore slide. And I tried it, and it worked for me. And I said, wow, this just sounds great. Sure enough, I got King to give me a 2B slide coupled to a 3B bell. And I used that for a long time with good results. In fact, a lot of my recordings are with that configuration. It's not a big deal. It's just that the factory has to make that coupler so sure. that the, 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 the 2B slide will couple with the, with the larger bell, with, with the receiver is larger. So anyway, I, I stayed with that configuration for quite a long time. And in the interim, I dabbled with playing just a straight 2B and just a straight 3B. And the 2B felt a little confining somehow. It, it, it felt... Kick back. It, 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 right, right. It wouldn't let... It, it didn't give me the freedom that the 3B gave me as far as projection. As what far mouthpiece as, were you using at that time? It's, a funny, it's funny you should ask, Tom. Years ago, when you bought a King trombone, the mouthpiece, the stock mouthpiece <laughs> that came with the horn was an M21. Right. I'm still playing it today. That same mouthpiece. And those you're playing a uh, Yamaha, you find, what do you find attractive about that instrument at, at this point in your career? It started with the leader pipe syndrome that I eventually got involved. Uh, I was talking to Chauncey Wells and different guys around L.A. who were into this leader pipe thing. That is changing leader pipes and putting in a different leader pipe and, and changing the response and the characteristics, characteristics of the timbre and whatnot by changing leader pipes. I, too, got curious about all of that, and I went out to, to see this guy whose name is Larry Minnick, who you may or may not have heard of. Good mechanic, a guy who works on... Uh, repair. He's a, really a, a musical instrument repair service, and a lot of high-profile players. When they go through L.A., they they just, they just go by and stop by and have Larry sometimes just look over their horn to make sure it's working properly, etc., or to repair or whatnot. Anyway, Larry took a couple of my kings and took the leader pipe out and put in a different one, and said, "Try this, Jay, and see how you like it. And, you know, I'll make another one for you." He made four or five different leader pipes. And I, sure enough, I found out that each leader pipe configuration did have an effect on your range, your, your timbre, or whatever. In the interim, I heard about Yamaha through the grapevine. I heard that they had this uh, model that came with three interchangeable leader, leader pipes. The one thing I was having problems with with the king horns and the leader pipes that many uh, was, were making for me was that when you when you pulled out the mouthpiece, the leader pipe and everything came out because the mouthpiece was stuck so tight in there. That got to be a nuisance. And I had heard that the Yamaha had interchangeable leader pipes that you screwed in so it was secure. And furthermore, I'd heard I'd gotten some good uh, information through the grapevine that the Yamaha was a real good horn to play on, and that that you should really look into it. I had heard about the Con model that came with three interchangeable leader pipes. I, I, I don't know what the, this 100-something. Yeah, I, but, I, but, the, but the con uh, instrument that has three interchangeable leader pipes is a 500 bore. The Yamaha situation, they make two points with interchangeable leader pipes. There's the one that's a 0.500 bore, the other has a 0.508 bore, 
And uh, I got so curious about this, I was talking to a guy in the local music shop, a music store where I live in L.A., uh, where I bought a uh, music paper and mute uh, stuff like that, Baxter Northrop. And I was talking to a guy who's a good friend of mine, a nice guy who runs, kind of runs the musical instrument department, Brian. I said, Brian, I hear a lot of talk about this Yamaha. What, what, what can you tell me about it? What kind of feedback are you getting? He said, yeah, I'm getting fantastic feedback on this Yamaha. In fact, he said, man, guys, come in, pull them out of the case, play a few notes, and I see this big smile on their face. So I, I, mean, I don't know what better information I can give you. That did it. I got on the phone, and I called Jack Foss. I told him I was interested in trying out the Yamaha. He said, oh, man, we'd be happy to have you try out our instrument. He said, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll send you two. I'll send you two of that one you're interested, uh, the one that you're interested in with the .508 board. You try them both out and keep one, the one that you don't like, send it back, plus send back one of your king's, one of your king instruments, and that's the end of our, that's the end of it. It's yours horn, you, you have that horn, and we'll have the other. I kept both horns and sent him <laughs> two kings. <laughs> I liked it so well, and it came the day before I did a, uh, an isolated appearance at the Ray Brown's Club in L.A. in the Santa Monica area mm -hmm. called the Club Loa. This happened just a few months ago, by the way. And um, um, I tried this. The, uh, I received the Yamaha on a, fr on a Friday, and I was appearing at Ray's Club on a Saturday night. So I said, dare I try out this Yamaha when I just got it? I better stick with this king. I decided to live dangerously, and I took the Yamaha to Club Loa and played it. Uh, I had the king on another on a second music stand nearby, just in case the Yamaha felt too foreign or strange. Mm -hmm. It so happens that <laughs> I think I related this to the kids yesterday too. That the uh, that was the first time in my life ever on that Yamaha that is that I hit not one but two high Fs, two high Fs in live performance. I had hit I had hit high Fs at home. You know, you pop them out, you luck out, you squeak one out or you pip one out here and there. But on the stand, I had never played a high F. On those two Yamaha, on, the, on that Yamaha, I hit two high Fs that night. I couldn't believe it. And some of my mu musician buddies were there, and they were just beside themselves. JJ, you played high Fs? We've never heard you do that live, or, or on your records. I said, wow, wasn't that something? So anyway, to make a long story short, I've been playing the Yamaha since then, and my agent and personal manager uh, and myself are trying to work out an endorsement deal with Yamaha, and I will no doubt be playing the Yamaha from here on in, because I like the instrument. And it feels more comfortable every night. It's still, you know, I'm still getting accustomed to it. I, sure. I, I kid you not. It, I'm, 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 not, I'm not home yet on the Yamaha, but it, it just feels better every night. I noticed uh, uh, at the show you're using a prototype Marcus Berry pickup that actually clips to the bell. Um, mm -hmm. which, how do you feel about that? How do you like it? I like the concept. I've wanted to go in, the direction for a in that direction for a long time because in live performance, I have this nasty habit of when I, if, if I'm concentrating it during an improvised solo or it feels very, very good to me, I'll close my eyes to play. And <laughs> many times in the past, when I finally opened my eyes again, I, the, the, the bell would be pointed one way and the mic was way over somewhere else. I had wandered so far off mic and it got to be a problem staying on my, and, it, and, it, and it, it got to be a mental thing. I said, God, this is confining just to stay pointed right at the mic. And uh, I had been toying with the idea of a pickup for a long time. And when, when I called Michael at Barker Sperry, he said, J.J., we're working on a prototype. We'd like for you to consider 
Sure, he, he loves going out on tour. He said, we'll try this thing uh, ready for you to take with you on your trips. And try it out if you feel like it. Sure enough, uh, he brought it over the day before the tour began. I tried it out right in my studio at home. He said, wow, gee, that sounds great. I think you're going to like this one. Uh, it is a prototype. We don't have a model number or a name or anything. So no distortion and loud, louder registers, uh, louder so, dynamics? So far, uh, you know, I'm, I'm depending on the feedback I get from the players in the audience who tell me, Jay, the, the pickup sounds great. What kind is it? Which is what Barker Berry wants to hear. Do you miss the personal feedback you would have in going to the mic and coming back off the mic, a traditional mic? I haven't missed it yet. Okay. I haven't missed it yet. I'm, I might run into a situation where I'll miss it, but so far I haven't. Back in your J and, and K days, and uh, many of your own recordings, uh, you made use of color changes through mutes. Uh, mm -hmm. Often I, I, I remember many poignant ballads where I believe you're playing a cup mute. Have you learned anything about, uh, what can you share with us about mutes? Playing mute changes the horn, changes the resistance, no changes question. the pitch, it changes your mic placement. Uh, could you share with us some of the things you've learned over the years about when we stick a foreign object into the bell of the horn? <laughs> Well, funny, I, Kay and I got involved with Muse, and in fact, our most successful recorded effort was a thing on Bethlehem Records at that time that was called, that, that was Kai's arrangement of Cole Porter to him called It's All Right With Me. And Kay had it figured out where we would exchange eights and fours and quickly change Muse during these eights and four bars. Uh, articulated phrases and whatnot. It was fun to do because we, we we never knew which one we'd grab next, and sometimes sometimes we'd bump heads by bump, grabbing the same one. Falling, it was fun, and so I got I got into this mute change thing with Kay, and we had such fun with it that that, that became a part of our trick bag. Was this it's all right with me? And we did it on other songs, but we we tried out. Uh, I tried out a lot of configurations uh, and colorations with mutes. And the one that seemed to work best at that time, that well, the color, I, I should say the timbre, the muted timbre that, that I liked best was with the cup mute. The only thing about that was you had, you had to be, the proximity of the gap between the mute and the bell had to be just so fussy and precise to get a good timbre, and especially during the recording session, we, we would even lose time while the engineer tried this and tried mm -hmm. that and what tried this. Finally, he got it just right, and consequently, I, I did get some good results on some of the recordings with mostly the cup mute. And I'm not using the cup mute anymore. I I, I received well. I, I got some. I got a hold of some Dennis Wick mutes lately. They make a very good cup mute, and they make a very good straight mute that doesn't really sound like a straight mute uh, to me, at least. Uh, I don't know what it sounds like, but anyway, I experimented around with it, and I tried. I I, I have a microphone up at home where I can tape and listen back and be critical or analytical. And the Dennis Witt uh, straight mute has two small, I'd say about a quarter inch, not quite a quarter inch holes on either end of the bulb. And I tried taping those up. Well, when you tape those two holes up, nothing comes out. <laughs> mm -hmm. So I said to myself, I think I'll bore a hole through the butt end. And I bored a hole through the butt end and taped up the two Holes that that the that the horn came bo uh, with the, the holes bored on the on the um, on the edge, and it worked pretty good. And I kept op opening opening the hole up to where it's now about it's about good lord it's about a half inch hole by now. So that was overkill because 
Whereas I like to timbre up that half-inch hole um, in the center of the butt end. When you get below your tuning note B-flat, intonation begins, becomes a problem a little bit. So I have a piece of black tape where I, I keep covering it up in varying degrees to find just that fine point, whereas you still have control over intonation in the lower register. And I'm still experimenting with that. I'm, I'm, I'm still not satisfied as to just what I'll do about that. But uh, so far, I'm getting results that seem to be pleasing to the listener with that hole bored through the center and half taped up. Before we leave the trombone, could you mention, um, in your fast playing, what articulations are you using? There, uh, uh, the, the double tum tucka tucka is often used in, in traditional classical playing. Mm -hmm. uh, some of the players uh, um, use the Carl von Tannenbill watches use a, a, a more legato doodle. Uh, what articulation have you developed when you're playing, or do you use various articulations in, in your fast playing? It would, it would be a combination of uh, the doodle 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 doodle. It is certainly not the tuka tuka, mm -hmm. because I don't do that very well, and it doesn't seem to lend itself to jazz uh, playing, jazz phrasing too. For, for me, at least. I've, I've heard some guys who had better luck with it than I. I'm, I'm surprised to hear you say you're using a doodle because there's um, more clarity and at times separation, at least I hear, mm -hmm. in your playing than with other people I associate with a, with a doodle. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. A lot of it's just single top. Mm -hmm. A lot of it's just, uh, it, it comes from just practice, 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 practice. And scale, 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 scale. I wish there were a God, no. I, I wish, I hope, I hope someday somebody finds a shortcut, and I wish they'd tell me about it, but at the moment there is no shortcut to practice. J.J., what do you prefer? I know the story that uh, one of your earliest arrangements had short for James Johnson and J.P., J.P. in the top of the, the corner, and that has stuck. Do you prefer to be called J.J., period, period, or J.A.Y., J.A.Y., which is your preference? I'm called both, and both are just fine with me. Uh, my wife calls me J. She calls me J.J. on occasion. My, my dear friends call me J. They call me J.J., and either one is just fine with me. I also understand the correct pronunciation of, of Kai Winding's name, at least in, in Dane, in, in, in Denmark, is Kai. That's true. But J and K just had such a wonderful ring that right? it became J and K. Well, the K ex accepted that. He preferred to be called Kai. He, he would tell you that, sure. but he wouldn't be offended by K. And he was, you know, he was sensible enough to realize that J and K, you know, had a ring to it and that it was uh, commercially uh, a good idea, J and K, instead of J and Kai. That J and K group of uh, 54 to 56 is very important because not only did it bring you back active into the scene after a few years of, of uh, being off the scene regularly, mm -hmm. it did a great deal to promote the potential of the trombone as an expressive solo voice. And uh, do you have any comments about how you view that two-year period and anything you wish to share to us about the late uh, Kai Winding? I think the most interesting part of that story is the beginning of it. It was intended to be Benny Green and J.J. Johnson. The idea uh, came from Teddy Rigg, a big fat guy in New York who was an entrepreneur and record producer and concert producer and promoter and whatnot. And he had this idea of hooking up two trombones, Benny Green and J.J. Johnson. At that time, 
Benny Green had a little, what we call a little light hit going. I don't recall just what it was. It was, it was kind of pop, pop oriented and kind of pop tinged, but it was making a little bit of noise for him. Hmm. And he wasn't, Benny Green, to make a long story short, wasn't particularly interested in hooking up with another trombone player to do a trombone du duo. It just didn't grab him. So T Teddy Riggs said, well, we'll try for Kai. We'll try for Kay Wending and we'll hook up J and K. In fact, I like the name J and K. What about it, JJ? And I said, well, let's try to get K. And sure enough, we got a hold of K and the rest is history. That's the most interesting part, interesting part of that story to me because it was intended to be Benny Green and J.J. Johnson. You seem to have a wonderful working relationship. And, you know, although many people said that the J and uh, Kai were um, similar in style, although you use Bob vocabulary and harmonies, I hear a great difference between the styles of, of Jay and Kai. Uh, um, I hear many more earlier influences and the traditional timbral nuances of using the slide uh, in Kai's winning than I hear in yours. I, I think they, they were wonderful contrasts, and that's what made the group work. You didn't sound like each other. Well, you know, the chemistry was such that it became so unified, if I could use that phrase, that term, that it was interesting, interesting to both Kai and myself that we'd run into people who said, you know, I can't tell one from the other. Many people said that to me. And many people, well, many people said the same thing you said. Oh, yes, I can tell the difference. I know when Kai's playing, I know when Jay's playing. But it was interesting to us what even musicians have said to us, you know, I can't tell where one starts, where the other leaves off. Ever any disagreements? problems with, with two frontline people playing the same instrument, working together? Never. Never kind. I never had a crossword. He was, I mean, it, I, I can't imagine anyone ever having a crossword with Kai. He was such a wonderful person. He was such a wonderful man, other than being a good musician, an excellent musician. He was a nice dude, he had a wonderful sense of humor. Uh, we got on famously, and we never, we, we, we never, I don't recall any disagreements about anything, business-wise, music-wise, or anything, ever. J.J., there are two separate but combined aspects of J.J. Johnson, the musician. One is the modern trombone improviser. The other is J.J. Johnson, the composer. And um, in your earlier career, your concern for composition was evident in tunes you wrote for your own bands, and even bands that weren't yours, your own, like Turnpike and so forth. Mm -hmm. And later on, you uh, uh, started writing some larger works, some big band work. We recently performed El Camino Raul with Rael, one of our students here, and um, I think of the composition Perceptions that was written in the mid-60s. Your improvisations always have reflected an almost compositional approach in which there was a balance of form, the shapes were very satisfying. There were high points each solo. All the same things that the composer concerns himself with. But in the mid-60s, it seemed to me that there was a, a definite shift in your priority to investigating compositional resources more than improvisation. And I, there was a, several wonderful big band records in RCA. There was the, the perceptions you mentioned earlier. What drove you during the 60s to place composition above the trombone and improvisation. Am I, am I correct to make that statement? That is correct. That is correct. I guess, Tom, I had been dabbling at it and got to a point where um, I, I had this 
powerful, I'll just use mid uh, or country and western phraseology, this powerful hankering to get more involved in writing. So much so that uh, in 1970, I moved to California to become a composer, a film composer, if you will, uh, a, film compo uh, a film composer and arranger for television and you know, uh, feature film and whatnot. And I was encouraged by the likes of people like Quincy Jones, who's a dear friend, who's been a dear friend for many years, who, who, who encouraged me to come out to California and have a, have a crack at it. At which point, I more or less put playing on the back burner. I didn't stop playing completely, but uh, high-profile playing I did put on the back burner. I didn't do any live performances or whatnot. Uh, I all believe 1964 was the recording on Impulse Proof Positive, Proof which positive. to my understanding was the, the last featured album you did for some time. I think so. There was also recording done, the Cape Verdean Blues with Horace Silver. Horace Silver. Was that in 65? You know, I don't just recall with any accuracy just when that was. Uh, I'm not sure just when that was. I remember the situation. What kinds of trombone playing were you doing between 64 when you stepped back as a soloist and uh, 1970 when you moved to the West Coast? What kinds of playing were you doing? It was minimal studio playing in and around New York. I would often find myself sitting next to Ernie Green, uh, Chauncey Welsh, and people like that, uh, studio guys. Uh, I did just enough of that to keep the chops up and to keep the economics of the situation working. And uh, jazz was going through a very strange cycle, if you recall that time. Rock and roll was really kind of uh, uh, gr grabbing hold of people's attention more so than, 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 than the other kinds of music. And, well, jazz has always been going through cycles and changes and whatnot. It was, it was, a, it was a bad time for jazz at that time, is my best recollection. And it just so happened that it, 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 it happened at about the same time when my curiosity and interest in composition uh, got, got so intense that I just started playing less and writing more. And uh, I got Have you ever studied writing formally? Formally, no. No, just books endless books and whatnot, and just exploration on my own, studying miniature scores with records and whatnot. It started when I got in with the, uh, the, the crowd that was finally known as the third streamers, John Lewis, John Carisi, and a bunch of guys who, uh, Gunther Schuller was a part of this whole third stream so-called thing. And uh, that's when I became really involved in classical music. Mm -hmm. I had always had an ear, or and a like, or I should say, a, an interest in classical music. But when I started uh, my association with John Lewis and Gunther in that in that crowd and in that cycle, I really got heavily involved in classical music. As far as studying it with miniature scores and, and becoming involved, and I really, you know, I got really hung up on like Stravinsky and Bartok. I must have about six recordings. Also, here's some Hindemith in there. Yeah. Oh, I was big. I was big on Hindemith. I, uh, and, and I still am. Uh, I think his modest Jamar is a towering uh, work. Uh, I often ask woodwind players, are they familiar with Hindemith's Klein Kalam music? It's a marvelous piece. It's a marvelous work. And I'm amazed at the woodwind players who never heard of it. Excuse me, are you proud of the... Uh the punch yard sent us up here to work. Uh, we have a luncheon in five minutes when we come in. Okay, thank you. Okay. Um, 1970, you moved out to the West Coast. What 
prompted you to move? And did you have the prospect of any work when you moved? I had no prospect of work. I had only the encouragement, as I said, of Quincy and Lilo Schiffen and guys like who, who said, have a, have a stab at it, have a crack at it. And uh, they were kind enough to put in a good word for me in the right places so that I, sure enough, got started in film composition and arranging and composing, and it worked. During 19... Following 1970, how much work did you do? How often did you play as a trombonist? Not, not as a high-profile trombonist at all. Only minimal studio playing. Well, there is a point where you, you seem to stop playing regularly at all? Uh, you mean not even touch the horn? Right. There, there was never such a time. I always, I always practiced some. Uh, not a lot at that time, but I practiced. I managed to get, the, get in some practice on a daily basis, really. After 15 years of not playing as a soloist night after night, do you find it difficult now going back out on the road and playing two sets every night after basically playing at home and doing occasional studio work? Well, let's say that uh, the opening uh, week in Chicago, the chops were hurting a little bit at the end of the night. Ouch. <laughs> but it's, uh, it's gotten more comfortable as, as, as time goes on and when we... Uh, got out into the trenches, as it were, doing the one-nighters. We did one for Jamie Abersole, and we, we did one in Washington. The chops began to feel better and better and better, so that by the time we got here, it's starting, it's starting to feel pretty good. It's starting to feel pretty good. Who are some of the younger players you've heard that you really think are making interesting statements that you would invest, suggest the young trombonists to go out and listen to? Well, the first name that comes to mind is Slide Hampton, who is playing up a storm these days. There's, I hear that Curtis Fuller is playing beautifully. I, I, that doesn't surprise me. I haven't heard him live for a long time, but I'm not surprised at all that he's, play, he's playing beautifully because he's been headed in that direction a long time. There's some youngsters I don't know very well, some of who, some, some of these guys have sent me tapes, Robin Eubanks, uh, Steve Turay, um, guys like that are... They're, they're the coming generation of trombones, I suppose. There are some guys I heard, I've heard about who I haven't heard play yet, so they're coming out of the woodwork, Tom. They're out there. <laughs> they're out there. Got a difficult question for you, or maybe difficult. Would you, if someone that did not know anything about the, your career and asked, what album do you think best represents uh, the playing you're most pleased with? What album or albums would you suggest the, the player to go out and investigate? Unfortunately, it's out of print. Hopefully, it'll be it'll come. The one that, I'm, that I have in mind will come out on a reissue. That, you know, the reissue market is a big market now in, in record sales, and the, the CD market is even bigger. So, uh, my in my opinion, my best efforts were recorded efforts were on an album called A Touch of Satin. I came by this decision when I, I went through a painful experience with Jamie Abersole, who was putting out a book of J.J. Johnson trombone solos transcribed to a paper to print he said JJ uh, what I want you to do is sit down and listen to your records that's painful already to listen to your records and evaluate them in any in any, in any manner you d decide I said Jamie how in the world can I do that he said well that's what I gotta have JJ what try it sure enough I sit down and spend like the, the better part of a day listening to my own solos over and over again and trying to evaluate them and what happened is I, I used a scale of 1 to 10. And it's, it so happened that there were no 10s. Oh, really? You're very there, critical. I'm pretty critical. I'm pretty hard on Johnson. There were no 10s. 
There was a nine that got upgraded to a nine and a half, and I ain't telling what it is. <laughs> Boy. <laughs> there were a couple of eights. There were quite a few sevens. And one or two nines. And one nine that got upgraded to a nine and a half after, after I thought about it. No tens. And to uh, conclude, do you have any, any words of wisdom or encouragement to share with young trombonists trying to deal with the awkwardness of the nature of the trombone. It's a very unusual instrument, and um, uh, Bobby Brookmeyer once said it's, it's cold in the morning and it hurts at night. You know, he said it. He said it all. The only advice I'd have to guys is try to, uh, try to acquire good practice habits. Uh, you know, there's this controversy going around with not only musicians, but people who are into physical fitness uh, situations and whatnot. No pain, no gain. Well, uh, as far as practice, as far as your practice routine is, is concerned, uh, I've found out the hard way that no pain, no gain doesn't work too well. When it starts to hurt, you ought to stop. Don't practice to the point where you're beating it to death and your lips are aching and you're just going on and on and on. It, 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 it will not reward you with anything but more pain. And you could, you could permanently injure your embouchure by doing that, so don't play pasta.